Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership two soul and pop songwriting and producing giants, Brian and Eddie Holland. As two-thirds of the legendary Holland-Dozier-Holland triad, the brothers' thousands of credits are highlighted by their incredible string of classic 1960s Motown records hits by acts such as Martha and the Vandellas, The Miracles, The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, and The Four Tops. Into the 1970s and beyond, their success continued with Chairman of the Board, Frida Payne, Honeycone, and many others. Hey, I got to jump in and interject just some of the amazing uh, run of records that uh, Eddie and Brian and uh, Lamont Dozier put together. They had 27 top 10 pop hits and uh, 12 went to number one. And here's what they were. Heatwave, Martha and the Vandellas, Mickey's Monkey by the Miracles. 
Quicksand, Martha and the Vandellas. Where did our love go and baby love and come see about me all consecutive number one pop hits with the Supremes. How sweet it is to be loved by you by Marvin Gaye. Stop in the name of love. Another number one for the Supremes. Nowhere to run. Martha and the Vandellas. Back in my arms again. Another number one for the Supremes. Followed by another number one, this time for the Four Tops, for I Can't Help Myself. It's the same old song, another Four Tops hit. I hear a symphony, another number one with the Supremes. My world is empty without you. Love is like an itching in my heart. And then another number one with the Supremes, you can't hurry love. Reach out, I'll be there. Number one with the Four Tops. You keep me hanging on, number one with the Supremes. Standing in the Shadows of Love by the Four Tops. I'm ready for love. Martha and the Vandellas. Love is here. Now you're gone. Another number one with the Supremes. Baby, I need your loving. Johnny Rivers. Jimmy Mack. Martha and the Vandellas. Bernadette with the Four Tops. The Happening. Another number one with the Supremes. Reflections. Number two with the Supremes. In and Out of Love with the Supremes. That's just through Motown. After Motown, they had eight more top 10 songs. And those include You Keep Me Hanging On by Vanilla Fudge. Give Me Just a Little Bit More Time. Well, Give Me Just a Little More Time, actually, by Chairman of the Board. Band of Gold with Frida Payne. Want Ads by Honeycomb, which went to number one in 1971. James Taylor, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. Linda Ronstadt, Heat Wave. Phil Collins, You Can't Hurry Love. You Keep Me Hanging On by Kim Wilde. Went to number one again in 1987. And lastly, This Old Heart of Mine, Rod Stewart with Ronald Isley. So there you have it. An unbelievable historic run of so many number ones, so many top tens, Holland, Dozier, Holland. These 1990 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees who also are recently uh, in 2015 added to the Hollywood Walk of Fame continue to thrill millions and their songs are routinely remade. They remain active today with myriad projects, including their 2019 book, Come and Get These Memories, the story of Holland, Dozier, Holland. And they're currently working on a play about the four tops titled I'll Be There. Brian and Eddie, it's a delight to have you and an honor. Thank you. No, thank you. We well, appreciate being here. Scott, that was pretty good. You covered my whole life in, in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Well, thank you. I do what I can, you know, and uh, <laughs> you guys, I understand, are coming uh, to us from Los Angeles, and I'm representing here, as we talked about. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Very good. Um, so much to talk about. I did my best to encapsulate it, but let's try to fill in some of the, the gaps. Um, going back to um, the beginning, way back, um, late 1950s, connected with Barry Gordy for the first time, I understand. Uh, Brian's first songwriting success was Please, Mr. Postman in 1961. But the trio, Holland, Dozier, Holland, really took off in 1963 with three big hits, right? So um, I wanted to ask off the bat, you know, if you could share with viewers 
what those early sessions were like for you guys? Well, Brian, Brian sitting back with me. Well, I, well, the sessions were great. The musicians were fabulous. You couldn't find a better cast of musicians. They were all very um, fluent in, in their, their, their instruments. And uh, matter of fact, Mickey Stevenson went out to get these guys because uh, they were playing jazz at the time. So Mickey Stevenson, who was the A&R man at the time, went out and found the Funk Brothers and brought them in, you know. So, I mean, those guys were just great. I mean, the most greatest guys you ever want to know. Personality-wise and instrument-wise, they were very good, very good. What was it like uh, being in the studio, though, um, and that whole scene, you know, that was really just starting to develop at that point? Well, being in the studio with those guys, it, it was just great. I mean, it was like home, you know what I mean? It's a home from home. I, I mean, I enjoyed it every every moment, every fleeting minute that I was there. Um, I had so much fun working with the guys and um, doing all these different songs, you know what I mean? We had how many? Uh, we did three songs a session at that time. Um, sometimes we may get four in. But uh, it was just an un unbelievable moment. I mean, I don't know if you if you said, uh, did you want to take a rocket ship to the moon or be in the studio? I, I said I would be in the studio, you know. I want to make sure viewers are aware, too, that that was Brian that was just talking, and we have Eddie on the, uh, on, on the left. So um, what was it like, you know, when you broke through with those hits, so were you surprised? Were you just thrilled? You know, how did friends and family react? I'll try to get Brian to answer. Oh, I'll, I'll answer good, but I love hearing Brian talk. No, but the point is, is that I, I can't tell you how thrilled, how great it was to hear my songs on the radio. You know, I mean, it was just a wonderful thing. Unbelievable, and I didn't believe that was our songs, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was just really great. I don't know. But Scott, let me tell you the truth about it. Brian's being very modest. The fact of the matter is we look for them to be big records. You know, uh, we were gearing our minds. I mean, you know, when you're young, you figure, hey, man, the world is my oyster. You know what I mean? You really don't know how really, truly difficult it is. But, but when you're young, man, you you, you you feel that the world is yours to cover, you know? So therefore, we look for these records to be hit. Matter of fact, when they didn't hit number one, we were disappointed. When they didn't hit top 10, it was unthinkable. I mean, that's the way we felt about it. Because first of all, we believed in what we were doing. We enjoyed what we were doing. And we worked at it hard. We didn't just you know, throw up a tune and do a tune and run to the studio. It was none of that. We sit there, especially Brian. Brian was very, very meticulous of how he wanted these melodies to flow, how that melody should flow. And if Lamont came up with something, he said, well, yeah, but can we change it to here? Can we change it to there? So Brian's ear was impeccable. Brian can hear when the melodies was going in a great direction. He, was, he could hear when the when the music didn't took a wrong turn, he could hear it. I couldn't hear it. That was not my forte. 
at that time. I could hear it better now, but at that time I could not. You know, and, and me and my brother, we would get into to the worst arguments. We would he would be playing the piano. I said, "Well, Brian, I need more time to write." He said, "How much time do you need?" Because Brian was into the instrumentation and the melody. Period. He wanted the lyrics, but Brian would tell me, "You know what I mean?" Oh man, the lyrics are secondary. That's the last thing people hear in the lyrics. We got to make sure this production is right. Can you hear those? I'm, I got I got strains here. I, got, I said, what? I said, Brian, no. Can't you tell I'm putting these strings here? Can't you hear the horns? I said, no, Brian, I can't hear anything. All I can follow is the music, the letter, the, 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 the writing of it, the lyric, the flow. That's all I knew. Oh. And that's how I can tell when the melody is going good, you know. And so we would get into some not down, drawn out arguments all the time. Lamont, he wouldn't get involved with it. But who wanted to get between two uh, brothers that's, that, that, that that, that always fought to the teeth of what they believed in, you know. But uh, it was great fun. Like I said, we believed in what we were doing. And when, I mean, a couple of records, for example, uh, one record uh, after we did uh, uh, Baby I Need, Baby I Need Your Love, and I think we did uh, Without the One You Love. So we thought that was a hit. We thought that was just as good as uh, 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 <laughs> maybe I need to love it, but it didn't. It fell flat. Now you understand something. What falls flat to us was hits for other people. But you got to understand something. We were young guys. We believed everything supposed to go to top ten. Everything supposed to go to number one. We believed that. We looked for it. So I mean, show you just how naive we really were. But that's what happens when you deal with youth. <laughs> but let me tell you something. We fought for everything. We, we believed in it. And that didn't happen. There's another one that we did. We said, oh, man, I know this is a smash. Well, shake me, wake me. And I said, and it didn't go number one. It didn't go. Was it a hit? Yes, it was a hit. Everything was a hit. But what we wanted was a hit. We shot for number one. Because we were in a, 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 a company that was extremely competitive, extremely competitive, which is the thing that made us what we are and what made Motown what it is, because they competed in such a way. But the fact of the matter, the company was extremely competitive. Number one, Barry made it competitive. But how did he make it competitive? Barry had a way of dealing with creative people. He let you do what you wanted to do. He gave you a tremendous amount of freedom. But Barry was one of those kind of people, very unique individual in the first place, extremely unique. He had a way of always talking about being the best, doing the best, being the best, what's the best, who's doing this, who's doing that. So it kept you thinking. We weren't had we had really polished our talents when we first came. We learned it then, you know, and it created Again, I would say extremely competitive environment. Extremely. I would have to say this. A lot of people coming at Motown, if it was not for the competitiveness, they would have never developed. That is the beauty of this company. What people, I don't truly understand. They talk in terms of the songwriters, great songwriters developing, great producers developing. All that happened. But it was because of the competitiveness and the feeling that we had for each other. Mm -hmm. 
See, we didn't. We we had love for each other. We truly did. Okay. In other words, if you were doing a, a session, Scott, you were having problems. Brian would help you on this session if you needed to. If you came to me and said, "Well, how, what do you think about this lyric?" I would help you. You know what I mean? I won't compete with you, but I would still help you. That is the type of thing that Motown had. In the service, it's just a beautiful thing. But that is the thing that creates greatness. I still say that. It creates great competitiveness. It keeps you reaching all the time. You know, you guys really, uh, you're talking, you mentioned about number one. Uh, you really hit number one with the Supremes uh, starting in 64. What do you think it was about, you know, writing for them that just worked so well? Well, I, I put it like this, Scott. Uh, I said it then, I said it now. Anybody who could have sang that song, female group, it would have been a snack. Um, now, that is not saying, in other words, it takes, uh, it, it takes a record that is that good and that the people are ready to hear. It has the appeal, okay, to be that successful. It takes a combination of things, and this is what I'm trying to say. It takes the production, it takes the mood, it takes the type of song, it takes the way it's sung. And it, anybody who could have sang that song, in my opinion, not, not saying that everybody could sing it because everybody could, but all it took, and the same when we were rehearsing this song, and I, and I talked to Brian Lamont, said, look, I was going to take Mary Wilson. I said, because anybody that could sing it soft and sensuous, it's a hit. It is a hit. Okay? And that's what I believe. Most records, it, I don't know, it's, 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 Brian got, a, Brian got another explanation. Oh, I, I just say it depends on how the public accepts it, period. You know what I mean? Because there's been many singers that was not that good that the number one. You know what I mean? Period. It's a it depends on how the public accepts it. Like Boy George. I mean, I never thought Boy George was a great singer, but he was a big commodity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But um but Brian's basically saying the same thing I'm saying. I'm just worrying it to But that a green flash goes. That is the reason why I said it takes a combination of things. The song, production, and the and, and the person singing. That's the reason why I said anyone that could sing that song and deliver it in a sensuous way, it would have been a hit. It doesn't take a great singer, although Diana Ross is a great singer. Okay? And uh it's a combination thing, but always, it's always boils down to whether or not the person, the public right. accepts it. But they will accept it if it has the appeal to them. Right. And oh, you, that's true. And that's you true. never know. You never know. That song had a lot of appeal. It had an appeal. Right. The timing was right. You know, it doesn't take a great singer. It's what I was saying before. It's not about how great you can sing. But, but can you deliver that? Right. Can you can you can you make people feel that, that message? Right. You know that's all it takes. First of all, let me give an example. A lot of people were talking in terms of great uh, uh, singers when they talk in terms of uh, Johnny Mathis, great voice, great singer, great this, great this. Obviously, beautiful voice like an angel. 
The fact of the matter is, Ray Charles don't sound like it. Nobody is the greatest singer than Ray Charles. Ray Charles had a rugged voice. Ray Charles could sing anything, and he made you feel it. So if you yeah. don't care, if, so the, if the artist or the singer, as you put it, could, could deliver that feeling, could, could arouse your interest, arouse your feeling, and they accept it, it's, it's great. Because a lot of songs, as Brian was saying, were big, big records. Just for, let me tell you something. I had a had a conversation with H.P. Barnum. You heard H.P. Barnum, the great arrangement. Great arrangement. He uh he was we, he, we love Lil Willie John. Okay. He loves him, I love him. You know, a lot of other people too. Mm -hmm. Lil Willie John was an exceptionally honest, gifted singer. And we were talking about this song Wilbur Harris did. <laughs> Uh, going to uh, where was it? Uh, one, one, one Kansas City. Now this man sang this song. He was just just there, just riding with the track. Great song. The song was a super hit at that time. And I told H. B. Barnum, if Willie John would have sang that song, I don't think it would have been as successful. Why? Because Willie John is such a sophisticated singer. He would have taken it out of Somewhere. that, uh, out of that realm. What, what, what Wilbur Harrison did, anybody heard, they they could sing. A lot of times, people could sing. They attracted to some because it appeals to them. When they can sing it, or they can relate to it, they say, "Well, I can sing it." He sounds like, uh, I, you know, you know, that yeah, that happens a lot on different songs. Who was the other song? That's that one. Was another. I'm walking, I'm walking. Just, just, just nice, comfortable in the groove, in the pocket, and people smell that stuff so like hotcakes. You take another singer, take Jackie Wilson singing that. Oh, I don't think it would have been successful. So it takes a lot of it's a, it's a combination of things. Combination. Yeah. What? Where did you guys uh, draw your inspiration from for the songs that you were composing? Oh, man, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, first of all, uh, we just two individuals, Brian and I, we grew up on a certain type of music. We, we, we sort of hopeless romantics, to be honest with you. Um, we believed in songs that arouse the emotion. We always believed in that. We believed in, uh, if you notice, we didn't do something. It wasn't that rough, rough songs. It was not songs that, uh, that was combated. You know, it wasn't that type of song. They all loved songs. The melodies were pretty. The words were appealing to teenagers, different things. You know, baby, I need your love. Uh, uh, uh. Stop in the name of love, baby, love. Or baby love. I mean, all those are teenage things. And then, and then and, and I, the thing that I always said, it was a teenage appeal, but it had adult situations. Okay? That's what they had, you know. Because if you strip them down, strip out the teenage thing, any adult could have been in the same situation. But, the, you know, so we wrote, we wrote uh, adult situations with a teenage approach. My opinion, 
And, I, and I've had a lot of girls when we were writing the song come from Chicago, especially Chicago and uh, Cleveland. And they would say, well, is Eddie Holland here? And I never met him. And they would say, I said, well, when I come out, looks, you know, obviously <laughs> reluctantly. They said, well, well, we want to, I want to meet you. I said, well, meet me. I said, yeah, okay. Because he said, well, you understand my feelings. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I hear those Supreme songs. I hear that you understand me. You understand me. So, so I knew then that they were appealing. The songs were appealing. Young people could relate to them, you know. So again, records, and boys, come on. A lot of singers, it doesn't take a great singer to get a big hit record, but you you got to be able to sell it. It's got to have appeal. People got to be able to relate to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's my spin on it. Mm -hmm. So, Eddie, continuing with the uh, inspiration for, for composing and songwriting. Listen, Scott, the fact of the matter is I was singing, and, and, and that's a whole long story, because I accidentally started singing. I didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested in singing, okay, but it's, it's very, very involved, you know, unless the, the person having not read the book, it's very difficult. Maybe it's not difficult, but involved to explain to them. My, my forte of getting into writing lyrics is by almost accident. You know, the fact of the matter is this. I was going to a, a, uh, audition of a friend of mine, Ted Johnson, who wanted to sing. I did not want to sing. I was not interested in singing, except on the corners and the street groupies with my homies, sort of. That's all I was interested in. He asked me to go with him. I did go with him. I did coaching from him, okay? So when, when they went there to this, uh, this theater, the theaters had a lot of artists. People always come in the theaters. Always. So he uh, he went to this guy, Herman Jones, and he's asked him to sing. So Mr. Jones listened to him and said, okay, bye. So he sang. Now, then I was standing there, and he said, well, can you sing? And, I was, and it threw me off guard. I paused for a minute. I said, well, oh, yeah. He said, well, let me hear you. I, that took, it took me off guard. And so I just started saying, because I was caught into an embarrassing situation. He said, let me hear you. So fine. So I was saying the, the songs that, uh, one of two songs I knew, which was either Love Me Now, Let Me Go by Domino's with Jackie Wilson, with Jackie Wilson. And the dominant. Okay. So I say one of those. So he cut me off, cut me off. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I'm going to move around and leave. He said, wait a minute. He said, he said, take this contract. He gave the contract to me instead of my friend. He, he said, you go home, have your mother to sign this contract. So I was 17 years old. You know, I was in the legal age. So one thing led to another. And this guy, Homer, told me to go see Barry Gordon to write some songs. So, Anything, it's a long, long story. You know what I mean? Like, but like I said, it's just, I guess I'm reliving, reliving a book. I tired of reliving, I guess, in a way. But one thing led to another. So I end up being an artist with, 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 with Barry Gordon. 
I introduced my brother to him because my brother did music and blah, blah, blah. So one thing, it, just, it was just a very early stages. There was no Motown records. Okay, forget that. There was no Motown records. Gordy was a manager of several artists. He was a songwriter and a great songwriter, you know. And so one thing led to another, whatever. Like I said, anyway, it went from that to my brother, when Motown got, which is a long, like I said, all this is in the book, when the Motown started, how it started, whatever. I, my brother started writing, he was writing songs. And he wrote, uh, Please Mr. Postman, he and his couple partners. Okay, big record, big record. And uh, I noticed this royalty check, big royalty check, thousands of dollars. <laughs> and he's just a teenage boy. You know what I mean? And I, that's what I wanted. I was only doing this to make money in the first place. So it, it influenced me to stop wanting to sing so much. I wanted to learn how to write songs. And that's what I did. That's when I started writing. Smokey Robinson at that time, to me, was not only the best songwriter at Motown, probably the best in the country. He was immaculate. I mean, uh, extremely talented, you know. And uh, so by me wanting to write songs, I said, well, let me take two of Smokey Robinson's songs and study them because I like to learn from the best, whatever I learn. I want to learn from the best, whatever it is. But what I did was, I can't remember the two songs. I wish I could. I wrote the songs down on paper and I studied, studied, studied. I said, wow, you know what? And I made up my mind then. No way I could learn to write like that. Because to me, it was a little sophisticated for a person that had no idea of how to write songs. I said, it would take me my whole life to learn to do that. I had to find another technique, another songwriting. And it took me a year and a half, and that's what I did. And it's a long, like I said, again, it's all in the book. I guess I just hate reliving it. But the fact of the matter is, I started doing it, and um, one thing led to another. Then I developed my ability to write songs <laughs> and to be what I am today. <laughs> <laughs> That's what. All right. How was it decided uh, within the organization that you guys would primarily uh, write for Supremes and Four Tops? It had nothing to do with the organization. It had something to do. See, again, let me explain something to you. Again, Motown uh, was a very, very unique company because Barry Gordy was a very, very unique man. Okay, Barry Gordy didn't tell you for the most part what to write or who to write for. The artists were there. You would sign them. If you heard them, you had something for them, they had to do it. He would not He's tolerate you to emphasize. Had to do it. Very many, very clear. The artists have to pay attention to what the producers are writing. Right. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you know, we had enough sense about you know the songs we were doing, and if the you know personal artist was there, we thought they could sing it, and we took it to them. We, we, we recorded, not take it to, we recorded and say, in the studio, here's the song. It's just a different type of situation that whole time. 
And it led to a tremendous amount of success for everybody involved. I've often heard it, you know, compared to like an assembly line type of, uh, you know, environment. So uh, what, what were typical days like for you two? Days, well, I would have to say, you know, we came and went the way we wanted to. <laughs> we did what we wanted to do, you know what I mean? For instance, I can remember once when we started becoming successful, you know, the first two or three you know, maybe records, uh, the administrator wanted us to come in at eight or nine in the morning. I said, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I, 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 that was, that's drudgeable to me. I don't, I don't, I never liked that. I, I didn't like nine to five working. That wasn't my cup of tea. You know, I was a creative mind, creative energy, creative sensibilities, you know. So there was, I was uncomfortable with it. Some people I, I was. And so I, I worked on my own pace, in my own pace. And the, most of the creative people, they all did. Anyway, they worked at their own pace. When they wanted to. Whether it was at home, or at the office, wherever it was. You know, you mentioned about uh, maybe others could have had hits with some of those songs that were big hits for you guys. And I know... Um, and talking about the Funk Brothers as a group, you know, it's been said that they were just so outstanding at what they did and the tracks they laid down that anyone could have probably been successful with them backing them. Do you agree with well, that, that that well, band was? No, no, let's be realistic now. Let's be realistic. First of all, let me explain one thing to you, okay? Not that you don't know, but in case you don't, in case you're not familiar, it's about the song. First, you have to have the song. You get the song, then you do the arrangements. Okay, and then how you produce it, that's the, that creates all of, but without a song, I don't care what you I don't care who it is, it's not gonna happen. You got to have a basic song. It's just that we were able to understand what made a song strong, what made a song weak, what made a song appealing between the three of us. Or all the other people at Motown also, you know what I mean? I mean, for an example, doing with doing with uh, Smokey Robinson, you look at listen to Mary Wells. Uh, she sang the song just like him. The songs that Smokey Robinson got all those top ten records on, all he she did was sing the songs like to him. Her first song was nowhere near like Smokey. Bye bye baby, whatever. He sang, she sang. Uh, way he was singing. She didn't sound like him, but she took his approach. Okay? And his feeling. And his feeling. His basic, his, his basic feeling. You know? You know and and, and uh, could anybody have done it? I don't know. He just happened to be that one. <laughs> he just happened to be that one. So I, I don't know. You know, it's, 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 it's sometimes a really, really complicated situation. But only, only, the only difference is often you can get a singer that is so unique. You take like a Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye is one of the greatest singers ever lived. Okay? Marvin Gaye could take any song, any song, and work it. But if you notice, Marvin Gaye would sing songs. He, see, first of all, Marvin Gaye had a sweet, pretty Understand that. He loved, Nat King Cole was what he after all along. He's only, okay. 
But if you give him a song that needs to be raunchy, hitchhike and all this and that, mm -hmm. can he sing it? Can I get a witness? Can he sing, sing it? Does he sound like uh, Nat King Cole? Hell no. <laughs> Nowhere near. Marvin Gaye had the ability to listen to a song and deliver it to the way that song took it. The emotional. He would put the emotions in it. He would sing it. You know, he, he wouldn't say those songs make him pretty. He never. He would scream. He would, do, he would do everything it took to sell that emotion. He understood the song. He understood emotionally what he was saying. And he took it and he delivered emotion what that song was. Everybody yeah. can, every, can everybody do it? No. They couldn't. Yeah. One of a kind, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and talking about one of a kinds, you know, I wanted to ask you, maybe it's not very fair. You know, there was so much great talent there. Um, but, you know, maybe like, what do you think were maybe the, the biggest three raw talents that were part of that, you know, as far as performers and singers go? Where? Within Motown, you know, whether it's Marvin, Stevie, Gladys, I mean, those are some of my favorites. Wow, but. wow, wow. Gladys Knight was a great singer before she even came to Motown. She's a great period. I, when I first heard Gladys Knight, I think she was 14 years old. I knew she was good then. I couldn't believe it. I thought she was an older person. I, I first saw Gladys Knight in Atlanta, Georgia, Peachtree, Peachtree's some club. And I cannot believe my ears when I heard her sing. When they told me how old she was, she sounded like an old woman. I mean, well, I mean, not old, but he made a mature woman too. She was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. Young kid, young kid. Raw talent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I don't know if any, I don't know if any, eh, well, well, Stevie Wonder will come close. Stevie Wonder. Marvin Gaye was Marvin, Marvin Gaye was the boss because he could sing he really could and, and, and his basic uh, basic feeling about music mm -hmm. he liked to sing it pretty mm -hmm. he liked the Nat Key Cole that's what he wanted to do he wanted to sing jazz that's what's hard was jazz, that's right. <laughs> all the stuff he hit was far from it he could deliver. I mean, you know, he just he was a, just a unique talent, you know. And, uh, obviously, uh Levi Stubbs was one of the great ones. One of the great ones, you know. So I mean those, I would say Marvin, Levi, since you mentioned Gladys, you have to put Gladys in that Steve Gladys was rock. And then Stevie. Yeah. He had to name those more. In, in your minds, you know, if someone asks you, and I am asking you, to describe in a nutshell the Motown sound, you know, what comprises it? What made it unique and special? You know, what people often say, but my, 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 my gut feeling truly is this. And I know people don't talk about it, but what I, what I, what, <laughs> that's a tough question. But here it is. Is that, Let me tell you what the really with this, but, but anyways, the record business was used to a certain sound. That sound was geared by major companies. They had a different way of mixing. 
they had a conservative, what we could consider conservative wing of the earth. I'm saying all of this just to get ready for this. Every person in Motown had a different. Nobody was like Hollywood and Hollywood. Nobody was like Smokey Robbins. Nobody was like Stevie Wonder. Nobody was like these people. They all were individual writers that wrote from a different feeling. Yet when the records came on, Motown, right? Simple reason, Barry Gordy did one thing. Maybe he didn't even realize he was. When he first got his recording equipment, he started mixing. He did what was actually in those days a no no. You know what that no 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 was? He had the bass, yeah. He had the foot, yeah. He had the back beat, yeah. And then he would put the stuff in the middle. Nobody was mixing like that. Nobody. Understand what the music business really was. It was pop people. Or they were blues, but they would never, you know, put the song up. You know, you don't put the foot way up. You don't put the back way up there. They weren't doing that. And so every time we would mix up, the first thing we would do, Brian explained it better than me. You know, we explained, Brian, what we do yeah. for the first time mixing. Well, first I'll mix it, I will take the bass and the foot together. Then I'll add in the drums. Then I will add in the cymbals. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and then I bring in the instruments later. But I had the foundation of the bass, foot, drum beat, and cymbals up there. That action going, you know, whatever the action was with that foot and bass. So, you know, you put all that stuff together and then you bring in the horns and the strings and the vocals and everything else, you know. But that basically what created the Motown sound. That is basically what did. Now, and Barry Gordy basically was the foundation for creating. Why? Because he didn't know anything about mixing. He learned from the top of his head. He was around here. He didn't, he didn't mix us other engineers. And we had, what, six, uh, I think about that, uh, some, some secondhand equipment. Eight tracks, right. and we were making the best we could out of it. And I remember when when, when we were in the studio once, and Barry Gordy said, "Eddie, Eddie," he said, "Man, he said we're trying to chase the major sound." Mm -hmm. And we were. We were trying to make our record sound like major companies. And he said, "Guess what? They're trying to sound like us." We <laughs> couldn't believe it. I remember like yesterday we were in the studio. He said, man, they're trying to sound like us. Uh, right. he said, I said, are you curious? Mm -hmm. He said, yeah. And, and on top of that, a lot of those recording companies and artists want to come to Motown and cut very with the law. He created a studio from a garage. Yeah, that's right. His father, I think, would, 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 would pop story, put it, put it up. You know, and that was the Motown sound, but we got the real. Huh? We're great from Yeah, yeah, the Ray Gordy sound from the studio. Yeah. But I mean, his father's the one that yeah. built that studio. And, and that, well, it had to be a garage, an right. garage. It wasn't the was Yeah, it built that studio. Yeah. It wasn't a sophisticated studio. No, no. Not by no any means. And they kept saying the most town sound. We were laughing. 
<laughs> you know, the only thing that we did that we tried when people came out with strings, because I remember we had this one record, was a hit, I can't remember what the record was. And, uh, and I remember Barry said, well, the record's selling, it's selling. And we heard uh, that the, 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 oh, the Drifters put out this, that was my baby. Man, when we heard that string, we had never heard strings on a rhythm, R&B rhythm session before, never. We were mind blown. We were flabbergasted. I remember I was going to a record hop, and when that record came on, we all got stoned, and we started looking at each other. We were saying, my God. I mean, you can look at the expression and never heard nothing like that. Take this, taking this record, and uh, I think it had sold 50,000 copies. We want to put strings on it, made it better. Record stopped selling. Corner <laughs> Barry. The man record stopped selling. <laughs> he said, we put the strings on Once again, it's when you have something that appeals to people and that they like it, and you fool around with it. You 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 never know exactly what is appealing to people. Sometimes it's just a little sound in the piano. Sometimes it's a little sound in the horns. And sometimes it's a little sound in that voice that we often think is not a real singer. It often it's just it's those intangible things that 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 that, that, that gets involved in the mix that cause people to say, "Oh man, I like that. I like that." And you change that stuff up, it takes away the feeling. It takes away what the, the substance of what made it what it is. Did uh, did you guys or sense within Motown any um, pressure from external sources in terms of like you know what was starting to happen like with stacks and their sound and also with funk uh, coming out through like James Brown and Sly Stone and, and that. That movement, any pressure, any any like pressure to start, you know, maybe doing more funk or doing more, nah, you nah, know, gritty. Nah. nah, nah. For what? For what? I mean, first of all, our records were selling more than theirs. Mm -hmm. Our records, were, you had to, especially. I mean, if you're talking about Holland, those in Holland, I know for sure you got to understand something. Our records didn't even go R and B first; they went pop. Okay, understand that. Okay, because the type of chords that Brian was using, R&B, so-called R&B production, they weren't using those kind of chords. Never even heard of them. They never even understood them. It was so unique because it was a it was a combination of those pop chords and that funk bottom of it, and then the rhythm, the rhythm that people were using on in, in, in that pop environment. That's all it was. It was different, and the melody lines were different. The chord structure was different. It was unique. And the lyrics helping off the minute. Well, he talked about lyrics. I'll leave the lyrics out. That's what he says now. Let me tell you, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. That's a Brian. I'm the, I'm the guy that was the last on the totem pole. Brian said, oh, man, uh, the lyrics are the last thing people hear. That's the last thing people hear. So he, he didn't ever pay that much attention to the lyrics until after People start being successful, becoming successful, and he started listening to them. He wasn't listening to them. I would go to, I would go to my brother and say, Brian, because I was just a lyric writer for the most part. And other DJ artists, 
My, my job was to teach the artists and make sure the songs are right. And I would talk to them about the sermon instruction. Give me more, give me more bars here, Brian, because don't make one bar eight bars. Don't make one verse eight bars and then another one six because it throws the thing off. So he said, okay, fine. He didn't care nothing about that. He did it. We argued about it. And he just went on and did it. But anyway, all that combination, <laughs> the lyrics. And then, you know, he told me, Scott, about 30 years later. Hey, guess what? And them lyrics you did was the greatest lyrics. <laughs> I said, man, get out of here. <laughs> I said, all these years, I've been waiting on you to comment. And I would ask you. Brian, am I, am I doing the lyric right for you? Am I doing this one too? But he said, yeah, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Uh -huh. I, just, I said, I guess I'm doing them okay. He's not singing. So I just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And uh, then he come to me 30, 40 years later. Man, those are great lyrics. Oh, man. Better late than never, right? I said, I can't believe it. Scott, what happened, Scott, was... I was in the gym in Las Vegas once, working out. And then after I finished working out, I came and got in my car. And then I hear symphony came on. And then I just sat there and listened. And then I kept listening to the words. And the words just kept building and building. And I, said, I, got some, I got engrossed in listening to what he was saying. That was the first time I did that. And then I called him. I said, Edward, these dudes are great. He's <laughs> <laughs> stepping off the whole this time. <laughs> it goes to show you. You remind me of uh, my wife is totally into the lyrics of songs, and I am all about the music. So, oh, see? <laughs> she, you know, she'll like say, "Did you notice it says that?" I'm like, uh, "No, I didn't notice that." You know, I'm in, I'm listening to the music, but yeah, it's interesting <laughs> how some of us really are dialed into different aspects right. of songs. Right. You know, and that's where it goes. You know. Some of this some of that for you and some of this for me, you know what I mean? But I must admit that after a record get out there, a big record, they don't listen to the lyrics first. But when it start climbing up and getting close to the top 10, people start listening to the lyrics. That's what takes it to number one. You got to have both for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. You have everything, like you were saying, you know, with the arranging and the right singer and right. The, the right lyrics and the right music. Everything has to be just right. And you guys had that magic formula for so long. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.